0: Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast exploring themes, material, culture and stories that relate to the struggles and triumphs of women, both past and present. Welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. My name is Charlotte Appuyard, and today I will be recording a podcast for you which will be about the very interesting topic of vestal virgins. So, just as a forewarning, I am currently recording this in the middle of Storm Dennis, which is pretty standard thunderstorm. It's very rainy and windy outside, so there may be a bit of background noise. You may have heard of Vestal Virgins, or indeed visited the ruins of their temple, which still stands today in the Roman Forum. But essentially. They were a group of women who tended to the sacred hearth, ensuring that the flame was never extinguished. Vestals led interesting lives, and although they sacrificed much, they enjoyed a status that was elevated above normal women of this period. We will be exploring the lives of these Vestals, how they were selected, what their day-to-day activities were, and how they were perceived by the public who worshipped them in the cult of Vesta. First of all, I would like to introduce you to Vesta, the goddess of the hearth, the home and domestic life. She was the firstborn of the titans Kronos and Rhea, and like the others, was swallowed by her father. When her brother Jupiter, the Greek version of Zeus, who managed to escape their father's appetite, freed his siblings... Vesta was the last to be released because she was the first swallowed and so is regarded as both the oldest and the youngest of the gods. She was very beautiful and attracted the attention of both Apollo and Neptune who fought for her hand. Vesta rejected them both and begged Jupiter to allow her to remain forever a virgin. When he consented to this, Vesta was pleased and took care of his home and hearth thus identifying her with domestic life but more importantly with domestic tranquillity in surviving sculptures of vesta she is always fully clothed and often accompanied by a donkey while holding flowers or a kettle that is of course synonymous with her domestic identity According to ancient texts, the cult of Besta was founded by semi-mythical king Numal Pomilius, who ruled around 715 to 673 BC. It remained unusual because unlike most religious cults, this one was run by women. The hearth they guarded was sacred to the goddess, who was one of Rome's three major virgin goddesses, which included Minerva, the goddess of war and wisdom, and Diana, who was the goddess of hunting, and the moon. Rites that surrounded the Vestals remained fixed from the time of the Roman Republic through to the 4th century AD. There would be six virgin priestesses at any time who were dedicated to Vesta as full-time residents who lived at the Atrium Vestae in the Roman Forum. This temple had a traditional secular form which was a style associated with rustic huts, an architectural feature which must have made it more suitable as a domestic dwelling. Being a Vestal Virgin put you in a position of immense privilege and your identity as an ordinary girl would be utterly changed. Romans regarded their priestesses with a sense of awe and wonder. Plutarch stated, They were also keepers of other divine secrets concealed from all but themselves. It was widely believed that they had magical powers, to the point where, if anybody condemned to death saw a Vestal on his way to being executed, he would be freed immediately, under the condition of the sighting's authenticity. This position was a long-lasting one, and stretched for more than a thousand years, remaining a pillar of Roman society, Throughout rapid political changes, as the Roman power structure shifted from monarchy to republic and into the empire. In AD 394, the cult ended for good, with the emergence of Christianity. Let's reflect and analyse the lives of these women, the society they lived in and what it was truly like to be a vestal. Firstly, I would like to examine how young girls entered into such an auspicious system. Were they chosen by the gods? In reality it was mostly luck or bad luck depending on how you look at it. Captio refers to the process of girls being selected to leave their families and become priestesses. It is also the Latin word for capture which invokes an image of kidnapping. There are also records from 65 BC that show a list of potential Vestals which were drawn by the Pontifex Maximus, Rome's supreme leading authority, which in contrast drenches the act of selecting these Vestals in deep religious meaning, a far cry from girls being snatched in the night. From this evidence we see the candidates had to be girls between the ages of six and ten, and the children of patrician parents – who were also free from mental and physical defect. The final candidate was then selected by the public, conjuring up a bizarre ancient version of the contemporary talent show, but instead of fame and fortune, you are forced to enter 30 years of service and celibacy. These young girls would then enter the atrium vest where they would be welcomed by a new surrogate family of older vestals. If the girl had arrived from a poor family, the lodgings provided to her may have felt like a great progression, particularly as they would have been provided with their own bodyguard. The first ten years of life as a vestal would have been a lengthy initiation process, which would lead to them becoming fully-fledged vestals, able to actively administer rites. These rites were centred around the temple, the most important of which was maintaining the holy fire. As well as being vital from a religious point of view, the lives of the Vestal virgins depended on that flame not going out. If it did, this would cause an outcry and would immediately make everyone believe that something catastrophic had happened between the relationship of man and gods. As a result, the finger was always pointed firmly at the Vestals, who were often accused of neglect or breaking their vow of celibacy. As well as this, they were also responsible for the purification of the temple with water, which had been drawn from a running stream. In preparation for festivals like Vestalia, they also baked salsa mola, a cake of meal and salt that was sprinkled onto the horns of sacrificed animals. Vestalia took place from the 7th to the 15th of June and was the only time the public could visit their sanctuary. However, this honour was relegated to matrons only, who had to enter barefooted and with great humility. Following this period, there was always a ceremonial sweeping of the premises, as it was considered to be a time of bad omens. Upon the completion of these duties and rites, the priestesses would then spend a further ten years mentoring the new recruits, and thus the cycle continues." Within the temple, the priestesses also looked after secret talismans, such as the sacred phallus, the fascinus, which represented the minor god of the same name. This name also originated the word fascinate. This talisman was closely associated with magic, and of course, fertility being, you know, the literal visual representation of a phallus, of penis. It's likely that this object... <laughs> would have been kept in the Palladium, it was considered to have regenerative powers and was widely used as a symbol of protection. Today, examples of phallus-shaped jewellery, pendants, lamps and sculptures still exist in museums around the world. For example, you can see many carvings of stone phalluses outside the ruined homes of Pompeii. These carvings were mistaken for being lurid advertisements for brothels, whereas in reality they were religious symbols, Warding off the evil eye. So, what did Vestal virgins wear? Uh, It's probably what you're imagining. So, of course, white ceremonial dresses called stolas, which were long gowns often worn by Roman matrons. Their hair and headdresses had specific meanings as well and were described in Roman sources using the phrase seni crines, which is speculated to mean six braids is mentioned as the coffer of a vestal virgin, as well as a bride. And I think that they wore white. That also links them very much with brides and this idea of virginity before you get married. She would also wear something called a Sufi balum. I probably said that wrong, but anyway. Which was a short white cloth, similar to what we would think of as a bridal veil. So again, you have that bridal connection, secured in place by a brooch referred to as a fibula. The priestess's head would also be encircled with a headband, the infula, which also had an association with Roman matrons. So there is actually a second century portrait bust of a Vestal Virgin in the British Museum today, which demonstrates these styles of headwear. But interestingly, it is a portrait, so it does capture the features and the expression of a real woman who would have served in this role. Of course, it is in the name, and I've mentioned it before, but the chastity of the priestesses was essential to their role as religious figures. Their own virginity was also symbolic of the overall health of Rome itself, and taking this into account, it is no wonder that the murder of a virgin was a grievous sin. Although this punishment was harsh, vessels themselves also faced intense criticism if they broke any rules. Plutarch, who... I've quoted him already, um, but he was a first century historian, wrote, if these Vestals commit any minor fault, they are punishable by the high priest only, who scourges the offender. So immoration was the common form of execution if a Vestal broke her vow of chastity. Essentially, this was a terrifying punishment that involved being bricked up in a chamber and left to starve to death. Punishment for her sexual partner was just as brutal, death by whipping, which must have been a torturous, bloody, and drawn out process. Throughout Roman history, instances are cited of these grim sentences being passed. So, how did people worship the Vestal Virgins? What did people do to show their appreciation and to insert themselves as members of this cult to Vesta? So, of course, money and donations were showered on the priestesses and allowed for them to sustain their cult. Religion and governments were also closely entwined. So, when the Vestals tended to the Vestal Flames, it was not just an act of faith, but something that was good for the state. These women could also enjoy certain privileges, such as owning property, enjoying certain tax exemptions as well. They were also severed from uh, patriarchal control and existed on a different level to ordinary citizens of Rome. Due to this, they were able to give evidence in court without needing to swear an oath. I think they were pretty divine. They, They were sort of beyond human in a sense. So taking this into consideration, it is no wonder some Vestals were vulnerable to attack from jealous women, exposing them, to the potential of false accusations. One such example of this is widely celebrated by Roman writers, and it is the case of Tuccia, T-U-C-C-I-A, who was accused of being unchaste and astonishingly proved her innocence by carrying a sieve full of water from the Tiber. Of course, this feels very mythological but it had such enduring appeal that the iconography of the sieve so you know what you would use to <laughs> drain your pasta persisted beyond the roman empire and was often adopted in medieval and later christian imagery as a symbol of female purity there are a couple of portraits of queen elizabeth I holding a sieve so it shows that this iconography you know, stretched for over a thousand years beyond when the tradition of Vestal Virgins ended in the late fourth century, because of of course Elizabeth I was around in the fifteen hundreds. So you know that's very interesting, and I think that does highlight just how long lasting. The tradition of the Vestal Virgins was and the, the sort of iconography and how powerful it was in people's imaginations. Another shockingly scandalous case of Vestal Virgins breaking her vow refers to the third century emperor Elagabalas who married a serving Vestal. This outraged so many due to the importance of the cult that this act is often seen as a major factor that led to his deposal and murder. Following the fall of this tradition, when the flame was extinguished, aspects of the cult may have leaked into the new faith. As we previously mentioned, some symbolism filtered into early Christian art, but so did elements of the language. Just as the position of the Pontifex Maximus lived in the papal title of Pontifex, young women in the early years of Roman Christianity embraced virginity and celibacy for religious reasons, Echoing traditions of nunneries, which persist today. Beyond religious connotations, this idea of a woman tending to the fire and, in essence, ruling and protecting the home has fed into traditional concepts of female gender roles, in particular, the sense that women are rulers of the home and that sphere. So, think of the term. Keeping the home fires burning. Like so many things like this, it is complex and contradictory. On one hand, they had status and were thrust into a semi-divine position, but on the other, their entire identities were bound to the hearth, and if they even tried to break free, there were often deadly consequences. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will be posting some pictures on Instagram so you can follow us at the Museum of Femininity. I will also include any references to materials I've used in the show notes. Thank you, bye!